It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I am your host, your civics teacher, your neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams. And if you have not heard, I am also the 2022 NAACP Image Award for Outstanding News and Information Podcast nominee. Yes, <laughs> that is Sunday Civics. If you have not heard, if you haven't followed us on social media, if you aren't on my email list, you would not know that Sunday Civics earlier this week was nominated in the podcast category for an NAACP Image Award for Outstanding News and Information podcast. Give it up for us, mainly because of what we are doing here every every Sunday morning. You coming to class, me bringing someone to the front of the class, or even myself stepping in front of the class to give you the civics lesson that you need in order to take civic action every week. And I want to say thank you to each and every one of you who continue to listen and support the show, who more importantly, take this information that we are giving and take it back into your communities, into your states and advocate for your community, for your people. That is the reason why I do this show. I'm so very grateful for it. And, you know, during this campaign where we'll be asking for your vote, because if you did not know, you can actually vote in the NAACP Image Awards. You can go to vote dot NAACP Image Award dot net. We'll be sharing all of that information. And you can vote for the show. So you scroll all the way down to the bottom to the podcast category, Outstanding News and Information Podcast. You vote for me, but then you got to hit submit. So you can't just hit the little heart. You got to hit the little heart, then come out and submit <laughs> and submit all of the categories. And you can vote for other people like Idris Elba and everything for supporting, you know, actor and stuff like that if you want to. But June, yes. I want to say to you, mm-hmm. thank you so much for rocking with your girl. Girl, remember when we used to get everything together? We used to put it all together and take the public transportation or whatever and go to somebody's office and set everything up and interview. But we had good interviews. We get better interviews. And Jimmy Carter, if you're listening, we'd love to have you. We're like nominated now. (laughs) That's the thing. It's just like, okay, now that I'm nominated... Now that the show is nominated, I want to bring you even more, like my wish list. I want to bring you President Obama. I want, can you imagine having President Obama for Constitution Day and we having a conversation about the limits, uh, the possibilities that the Constitution provides in order to provide greater opportunity, representation, and equity in this country? Can you imagine that? I can. So, President Obama, if you happen to be listening to Sirius XM Urban View right now and listening to Sunday Civics or somebody in your orbit might be, tell, you know, tell him I'm in NAACP Image Award nominated and I would love to have him on the show. (laughs) You know, so I am extremely thankful and it's not just going to (laughs) be me talking about being nominated for an Image Award 
for the next hour. I actually do have a lesson and some information for you that we will bring to the front of the class because I wouldn't be the teacher that I am without, you know, bringing a lesson as well. And so later on in the show, we are going to have a conversation with state's attorney for Prince George's County in Maryland, Aisha Braveboy. And I know some of you are thinking that we've been down this justice reform, criminal justice prosecutor road for a minute on back-to-back shows. And there's a purpose. There's a method to the madness. We're in a category right now. We're in a chapter, you know, of laying the foundation of conversations we want to have about how we take action on reforming this juggernaut of a criminal justice system in our community. So it's really important to feature, to have conversations with the different actors, be they researchers, because next week we're going to talk to a professor from Brooklyn College who wrote the book, The End of Policing. We're going to talk to him about some additional items as well. We're talking to state's attorneys. A couple of weeks ago, we talked to Marilyn Mosby, the state's attorney in Baltimore. We're talking to Aisha Braveboy from Prince George's County. But I wanted to explore various aspects of the criminal justice system. We're also going to have a conversation about the death penalty. We're going to have a conversation about juvenile justice, not only with Aisha Braveboy, who we're going to hear after the break, but also some activists and organizers and actually people who have experienced being in juvenile detention centers in this country to bring those conversations out of the shadows and have real conversations about the policies that are surrounding these issues, what we should be doing politically and legislatively to address some of those issues, because anytime you are in this state where we are right now, where you are hearing on the radio, seeing in the videos, and seeing on the news, all this conversation about crime is everywhere. You can't walk out in the streets. People are scared to go on the subway. It's all creating this atmosphere of fear. And then what happens? People respond that saying, we we need somebody to do something. We need more police. We need more law enforcement. We need more ways to handle these people, these kids that are causing these problems, right? It, it, it creates that atmosphere. And so then how, how does America respond to that? How does your state respond to that? How does your mayor respond to that? They respond by, well, the people want more police. The people want these people off the street. Well, if you're going to use police and you're going to take those people off the street, where do you think they're going to go? They're going to go back into the criminal justice system and then you'll see more flooding of jails and prisons and juvenile detention centers and things of that nature. And then we'll be back at the same place 10 years later where we're talking about, you know, the prison industrial complex and we incarcerate too many people and people's lives have been lost. It's an endless cycle. We recognize it and we got to break it. (laughs) You know, we can't continue to throw the same things at issues that we don't want to see, right? Because that's what happens a lot with the criminal justice system. Unless you have family, friends, kids in a system, when law enforcement or other entities take those people from your view, they're out of your mind. You don't you don't see them. They're behind cages. They're behind closed doors. And you don't know what is happening. And we've had that same model 
for a very, very, very long time. And it's time to do something new. So I'm laying the foundation for us to hear what is happening in our justice system and for us to realize that as we are demanding safer communities, as we are demanding more resources for our communities, that we be careful in our demands and not demanding the same thing that resulted in the place we are today. So that's why we're still having this conversation is really to prick our hearts and our minds to think differently, to demand something different. We got to be specific. We can't say, Mayor, you got to do something. You got to take these people off the streets. Instead, we should say, Mayor, we need you to do something. We need you to provide resources and housing for those who are homeless. We need you to provide support services for people who may be experiencing mental illness. Mayor, we need you to provide resources and spaces for young people so they don't get in trouble. Because if you just say, we need you to take these people off the streets, that's exactly what they're going to do. So we'll be back with more of this conversation with state's attorney Aisha Bravefoy from Prince George's County. And we'll talk about those alternatives and things that we can demand and ask for. We'll be back. All the wahala, all the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm L. Joy Williams, and we have at the front of the class with us this morning, the state attorney from Prince George's County, Maryland, Aisha Bravefoy. Part of me wants to read her entire bio because she is certainly a Black woman who leads and has led so successfully in all of the positions that she has held. Prior to being elected state's attorney, she worked at nonprofits. She was an attorney representing clients in criminal and civil matters. She was general counsel for the community-based, I think it was a juvenile diversion program. It's called Community Public Awareness, Community Public Awareness Council, yes. So she served at general counsel there. And she was previously elected to represent the 25th Legislative District in the Maryland General Assembly, where she also serves as the chair of the Legislative Black Caucus of Maryland. State's attorney, Brave Boy, is an amazing leader, and I am so glad that she made time to join us at the front of the class this morning. Welcome to Sunday Civics, and thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you, L. Joy. It's so great to be with you. Learning more about you and your background and your leadership and, you know, just going down and like reading the stories because I'm a geek and I did go to your term when you were at the legislative caucus and just seeing how you have led in the different spaces that you have occupied has been an amazing journey, at least for me this week, to learn more about you. And I want those who are listening to learn more about you as well. So if you can, tell us the story of your first civic action. Well, my first civic action was attending a human rights rally in DC with my mother. She took me to a lot of those types of events. 
we would meet people from all over the world, really united in causes of justice, peace, democracy, and human rights. And I remembered meeting people of all different races who spoke different languages and dressed in their native clothing. And I always thought that everyone was so beautiful. I experienced different foods and arts and music. And as an eight or nine-year-old, in my mind, I thought I'd seen the world that day. Um, But I had traveled probably less than 30 minutes from my home. My mother knew that I couldn't really comprehend everything I was seeing that day. But she just told me to soak it all in. That one day I would reflect back on these experiences and I would really understand why she brought me there. You know, I could not have known then what she probably knew was that she looked at her eight or nine-year-old daughter with little pigtails and wearing my overalls. And I I thought I was styling at the time, (laughs) but she saw something in me. Uh, She knew that one day I would have an opportunity to make a difference in the lives of others. And she wanted me to be prepared to do that in a way that was fair and that was just. So she knew that sometime, someday I would be making decisions for people who looked like me and for people who did not. Some people who were born in America, other people who came from abroad, like my father did. My father's from Grenada. She knew that at some point I would make decisions that would impact people who may share uh, different religions than I do but that she wanted me to look at every single person as a human being and treat everyone equally. And so as I reflect back on that and where I am today, being the top law enforcement officer for a county of nearly a million people, and we represent a variety of cultures and people who have come from different places and languages, I am grateful that she saw in me something that I could never have seen in myself and that she exposed me to, you know, people and, and, and to standing up for people and fighting for people. And even if I didn't understand everything, if I understand that everyone deserved justice and everyone deserved to live peacefully, even if I only understood that at the time, she thought it was important to make sure that that was ingrained in me. And I am grateful. I am so grateful to her. And in my work now, I strive every day to live up to what she saw in me so many years ago. So I want to thank my mom. (laughs) I love that story. I love the story so very much because a lot of the stories that people tell about their first civic action has to do with their parents, with a cousin, with a godmother, you know, with someone, an an adult in their life, taking them along somewhere, having them participate in an action. And to me, you know, I share with people all the time that democracy or the principles of democracy, they're learned behavior, right? You can only participate in those by you practicing them. And part of that is those of us as adults, making sure that children come along the way in the process and not shutting them out of the process, but including them so much so that, you know, I can have my goddaughter now telling her teacher, my mama is president of the NAACP. 
week of <laughs> March. Okay, so we're not marching on homework, but um, <laughs> obviously this week our attention has been focused on voting rights of what's happening in Congress, of what has happened in Congress all week, actually for the past couple of weeks. And you actually have a program that you started back in 2020 called the Operation Protect the Vote for All, which ensures voting rights for pretrial detainees and inmates. And as we're talking this focus on voting rights, we're obviously talking about the larger voting rights across the country, early vote hours and, you know, voter ID and what should count and things like that. But part of that conversation also is limited conversation about those who may be pretrial detainees who may be inmates, because depending on what state, whether or not you can vote or not, being on probation, parole, or if you're banned from voting forever. So I was interested for you to make that connection and talk about why you started the program and how you see that in connection to the fight for voting rights right now. Absolutely. Well, you know, a state's attorney, obviously a large part of what I do is lead prosecutions for individuals who've committed crimes in our community. But I'm also responsible for protecting everyone's rights. And just because you have been accused of a crime, even if we believe we have enough evidence to convict you, you still have rights as a human being, as a citizen, as someone who can enjoy the ability to vote. And so we wanted to make sure that everyone had the opportunity to register and also to cast their ballots, even if they were in detention at the time. So every eligible voter who was at our county jail received a package and they, if they chose to, they could fill it out. If they were not yet registered to vote, they could register and then they could actually cast their ballots. What I'm so excited about is about 80% of those who decided to vote were new voters. And my hope is that they have to spend a a period of time in incarceration once they are released that they continue to exercise their right to vote. It is so important, even those who have made mistakes and have paid the price for their mistakes, they are still citizens. We still want them to be involved in making decisions on who leads us. And I thought it was really important that we started by making sure that those who absolutely have the right to vote, but who may be held pre-trial, had the opportunity to vote. So we were very proactive. And it was, it was a great turnout. About 200 or so people voted. And again, 80% of those uh, were new voters. I love that balance of understanding, obviously, your role as a prosecutor and holding people accountable, but also that, you know, these are human beings that still have rights themselves. And reframing in our mind that yes, people may have made mistakes, they may have committed a crime, they, there's justice that needs to be served, depend, you know, we, we, whether they're incarcerated, on probation, parole, any of those kinds of things, but that they still have rights too, and that your office can introduce them to those rights <laughs> as well, and to be participant in the democracy and pull them in as well. And 80%, that's a, that, that's a, <laughs> a number to be very, very proud of. How do you, I mean, just from you as a voter, as someone who has been and is in an elected office, you know, what are your thoughts about the, the voting rights fights that are happening, you know, on the federal level and then across the country where states are trying to restrict people's right to vote? 
Yeah, I think that in a country that's built on a democracy, many of these fights are the most anti-democratic fights I've seen. Why wouldn't you want someone to be able to vote? Why don't you want people to cast ballots? It It is really about control. You know, when I think of who was originally allowed to vote in this country and whose votes were valued. And now I think about how this country looks today. And everyone, unfortunately, in the eyes of others may not be equal. They may see them differently. They may view them differently. But the one place where we are all equal is the right to vote because it's one person, one vote. And so those who seek really to compromise our democracy, they want to destroy not that concept, but they want to control who gets to vote. And, and so they want to make it difficult for people to exercise their basic right. They want to control who gets elected by denying others the ability to exercise their rights. And they are doing it as elected officials, which I think is really quite fascinating. So it is okay for people to vote to elect you. But if those same individuals or individuals just like them decide to vote for someone else, well, now we have to do something about that. So they want to control the vote. They want to control who has access to the ballot. And because what they understand is that if everyone got to vote, things might look a little different. And that's what they're afraid of. And so we have to continue to fight against that. We need to get rid of this filibuster rule. We need to ask our, or really demand, that our Democrats in office stand firm and also Republicans too, because we used to have bipartisan support for legislation around voting. But now that the country is browning, now that there are people who may look a little different or think a little different, that they have more power, more control, um, more influence, now somehow we can't make what should be a bipartisan effort we make it now a partisan battle. And that is really anti-democratic. It's anti-democracy. And so we have to fight to save our democracy. Thank you so much for that. I mean, it just as, you know, because, you know, you, a top law enforcement officer, you've never really had to prosecute anybody for voter fraud or any of that. Like, that's not something, do you have a whole division directed to that, that you have to direct so many resources to processing it? You know, we we don't hear we, those types of claims would go to the office of the attorney general for the state of Maryland. But fortunately, since I've been in office, when I took office at the end of 2018, so my first full year in office was in 2019. So we've only had one election since then, the presidential election. And we did not have any claims of voter fraud or voter intimidation. However, what we did was we worked with uh, local uh, civil rights groups to ensure that there was a line of communication open between the public, my office, the NAACP, the Office of the Attorney General, the Board of Elections. So if there were, there were any issues that uh, arose on election day, that we would be there to address it directly. So we were prepared, but fortunately, we didn't have some of the issues that I know happen in different states. Yeah. Yeah. We'll be right back. How can it be that you love the most unlovable part of me? Of me. How could you see your life was the only 
Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm L. Joy Williams, and we have at the front of the class with us this morning the state attorney from Prince George's County, Maryland, Aisha Brayfoy. I want to turn our attention to something that you, you know, as I read some of what you have done in your professional career thus far in talking about juvenile justice reform particularly, and I know that it is something that your office has been addressing in a myriad of different programs in the way that you handle certain cases and families. And one, I wanted to start with getting a real definition for folks from your perspective. We use the phrase school to prison pipeline, right? And quite often we use phrases or sentences and repeat things over and over again without any clear definition of what we're talking about. And particularly since your office is addressing some of these issues, can you define for us, what are some, when you hear the phrase school to prison pipeline, like what kinds of actions, activities, or things are connected to that? Well, I can tell you that, you know, back when I was in school, which was many years ago at this point, <laughs> uh, we, we would have school fights and somebody would get, you know, called to the office and the parents would come and that would sort of be the end of it. So, you know, maybe someone would get suspended. But now what i would seen even before I, I became state's attorney, but when I was working with the Community Public Awareness Council, we saw a lot of what's called J-1s. And so those are juvenile charging documents. In Maryland, they're called J-1s. We saw a lot of those for school fights. So young people were being charged with second-degree assault, which is a crime in Maryland. But again, these were school fights. And I'm not saying that some of them weren't serious. And the more serious ones, I think you have to handle differently. But what we saw oftentimes were what amounted to mutual combatants. Again, they were doing the wrong thing. There should be consequences to their actions. But the question is, should that be handled inside the justice system? Or could that be handled differently? And we always thought it could be handled differently. And I can tell you, after working for almost 17 years with CPAC, we diverted nearly 4,000, they're probably close to 5,000 now, uh, young people out of the criminal justice system. You know what? Probably less than 2% of those um, young people reoffended. The reason why I think the program was so successful is because it recognized that, that children were children but that they were also people who have a great capacity to learn and to grow. And so we focused on their character development. We focused on exposing them to things that they may have an interest in and think that they never knew that they would have an interest in. And we helped to give them structure. We work with their families. A lot of times parents don't know how to parent for their children because you don't get a manual when you become a parent. And you're expected to know a whole lot of things. But now in, in, in the modern day, you know, America and, and, the, and the world, children are exposed to so many different things. There's so many influences coming at them through their phone, through their computer, just every single day. There's there are a lot of messages out there that you're not sending as a family, but they're absorbing. And so sometimes children are acting different than how their parents grew up. So they're like, I don't know where they learned that from or how did, you know, why are they doing that? 
And so instead of chastising the parents, we wanted to be a support for the parents. So we have a parent support group where parents can, you know, talk to each other. We bring counselors in and we have a lot of different resources for not only the children, but also the entire family so that they can all be whole and grow together. And so we've had so many success stories coming out of that. And I took that same philosophy here in the state's attorney's office. And so we focus in terms of our juvenile prosecutions on the more, more serious offenders, those who are using guns in our community, those who really present a, a real threat and danger to our, our community. But for those who are getting involved in school fights, maybe petty theft at schools, things like that, you know, we have to handle those differently. So we have developed a memorandum of understanding with our school system where we work with them to structure restorative justice practices within the schools so that many of these issues are handled right there at the school and not, you know, reaching the the criminal justice space. And we think that's best for everyone involved. And it has been successful. I like that idea of developing, because you're right. I mean, even, you know, with me going to school, right? There were different things. Oh, you got in trouble at school, right? Maybe detention, maybe, you know, you're expelled or like there are different types of Mm -hmm. escalation depending, but it was handled at school. The only time I remember seeing police officers at school or anything was when, as you mentioned, something escalated as a, you know, to a weapon, to, you know, someone being physically, seriously harmed or issues of health concern, right? I remember in high school, there was a concern about students and I went to school in California during the time there was some like suicide pact situation and like all, you know, that that we had an assembly and the police officers came and like counselors and you know, everybody came to sort of have a conversation. It was only when it got to a serious level where law enforcement was involved. But for the main part, as you mentioned, incidents that are not listening to the teacher, yell, you know, yelling at the teacher or a, a fight between two students. And then we see on the news those stories of kids being handcuffed as, you know, young as five, right, with law enforcement rather than addressing in some other way. So those are really what we're talking about because then you gain a reputation, right? If law enforcement is consistently being called in the school and connected to that, then it becomes, you know, this reputation that builds. And you can see the numbers that directly correlate with children who in a school setting are, you know, detained or suspended or things like that. And then there is, what are called like petty crimes that it, it, then it just escalates from there. Right. And so sort of trying to address to provide services, as you mentioned, whether it's for the parents, for the students, for the educators who themselves may not be used to handling, you know, um, certain students because right. First time teachers are what, like 23. <laughs> What's true. And some of them don't have kids themselves to know how to address this behavior. So that's really something that I think, like your office is doing, we have to be proactive in addressing services rather than just, you know, throw every throw throw police at it or throw law enforcement, which is our default, right? Is always like 
throw some police at it and lock people up and lock them away. So I, I'm wondering, because you talked about your 17 years at the organization that focused on diversion programs for young people. What are some of the things that you've seen from that background that we're not doing enough of that really makes a difference in young people's lives and actually has an impact on our community and public safety overall? So one of the things that, you know, not only did I learn from being there for 17 years, but my office, we hosted a youth justice forum. And this was pre-COVID, so in 2019. And we wanted young people to answer the question that you just asked me. And we split them up. We had over 100 young people there. We split them up in about four or five different groups. And the one theme that was on the top of everyone's list when they reported back was we need more counselors. We need people who we can talk to. We need to be understood. We need to be heard. And these are students, many of them, who were high performers. So the the students who were referred to us to come to this conference, a lot of them were the students that the, you know, the the school were very proud to send because they had, you know, achieved and and felt that, uh, you know, they would be good representatives from their schools, although we didn't necessarily design it that way. But what they recognized is that they even need help. That many of them, even though they may be achieving in school, that they are hurting inside and that their fellow students, some of whom were not there, were also hurting and needed help and that they could see them headed down the wrong path. And so they said, you know what? We don't have enough counselors in our school. We really need that. That's important to us. And so I think that it is extremely important. It is critical. You know, the human brain, it is, it is reported, our scientists are telling us, does not fully mature until a person is in their 20s, their mid-20s, uh, which means there is a lot of growth and development and interventions that can happen. And when a young person tells you, I need counseling, believe them. And I think that if we saw our children differently as people, as little people who need our help, as opposed to just always chastising them or instead of just, you know, punishing them, that if we love them, that if we treated them differently, that we helped them, if we get, gave them what they asked for, uh, maybe we would see different outcomes. So I think that's one of the things that we really need to change. We really need to make counseling and therapy available throughout our school system. I'm not talking about putting kids on medication. Let me just say that because I, I'm not a supporter of, you know, the overuse of medication. If medication is necessary, that's fine. But a lot of this is really about being able to, ha- to have someone be heard and we need to, to provide an opportunity for that in our school system. And so counseling and, and, and elevating the role of counselors and therapy in our schools is something that I think could be very helpful. You know, related to that, you talked about the brain development, and I think your office describes it as emerging adults, right? Yes. Was it 24, 25? 26. 26, okay. From that piece. 
and, and connected to that, I've always had this question about like how in this country we decide to try young people as adults and the connection, you know, that that makes that. And quite frankly, I've often only seen it when it's like, oh, the crime is like we deem as society this moral definition of this crime is so heinous or so this that they must be adults rather than like funny. I'm not clear on like the direct connection on that. Yeah. So in most states, you cannot try a young person as an adult for what is a misdemeanor offense. And certain violent uh, offenses, certain felonies, you wouldn't be able to either. There are certain felony offenses like carjacking, armed robbery, murder, a rape, where even those laws that say you cannot try young people for certain crimes, those are crimes that are excluded from that. And in fact, in a state like Maryland, currently, if you are, let's say, 14 years old and you committed a murder, you are automatically charged as an adult. Now, the state's attorney's office can review that, make different charging decisions. There's a waiver, what's called a juvenile waiver hearing, where you review the facts and circumstances of the case. You review the individual, the uh, young person who's committed the offense. And then there's a determination made on whether or not that that individual will remain in the adult system or whether or not they will be weighed down to the juvenile system. What I can tell you is that our juvenile system is broken. We really need to put more resources into our our juvenile system so that we can have more comprehensive programming and support for young people who are in the system. Oftentimes people are concerned about putting uh, young people in the juvenile system because they don't think that they're going to get the type of intervention needed to prevent them from committing crimes in the future. My thought is that while I do agree that that is um, absolutely true, that we have to put more resources in to a system that is more restorative and, and, and more holistic. And we need to include nonprofits and organizations that are reflective of the people who are in our prisons, in our jails. Because oftentimes what we find is nonprofits, some nonprofits, and I'm not saying they're not doing the right thing and have a good mission, but they are unable in many ways to reach young people because they don't identify with them at all. So I've, I've been very intentional about working with nonprofits who are reflective of my community, understand the young people, who the young people can relate to. It's important that we do that because, you know, we want to make a real difference. We don't want to just say, oh, we, we put them in this program and they graduate. No, we want to say, you know what? They're whole. Uh, we've gotten them to turn their life around. And that does not seem, honestly, to, to be what is happening at all times. And so our juvenile system, I think there needs to be another system, which I call the emerging adult system, for those who may need more interventions, who are maybe a little older than we can consider the traditional juvenile, but still, you know, have the ability, in my opinion, to be restored. And we have to put, again, more money, resources, 
educational funding, job training, job placement, as well as counseling and therapy for those individuals so that we have no chance for them to not offend in the future. You know, I'm interested in your particular take as it pertains. You're talking about emerging adults. You're talking about the programs and helping parents and helping people who have to be detained or incarcerated. And similar to myself, I'm thinking about what are the different programs, resources that people need to divert them away from what we deem as crime and divert people away, but that quite often comes in direct contradiction to people who use justice as revenge, right? Mm -hmm. And it's just like, well, people need to pay for their crime. Yes, people need to be held accountable, but justice isn't revenge, right? And so, you know, justice in a case may be different depending on the circumstances, Yet we have been conditioned probably all of our lives. And as someone who still watches crime shows and not <laughs> comfortable, right? But we've been conditioned to believe that justice is revenge and that the only response is one in which we have to, someone has to serve time. Someone has to be locked up. Someone, you know, has to be killed themselves at, you know, the behest of the state in terms of a death penalty because that's what justice is. I mean, for me, I know that's a long road because it's so ingrained in us. Yeah. But it, and that's what I think is connected to this aversion when we're talking about restorative justice practices, when we're talking about prosecutors' offices that are, you know, not focusing a lot of attention on low level and petty crimes, trying to actually solve murders and rapes and, you know, sort of other heinous things. But there's this aversion to it. And it's really, I think, connected to we've been taught all of our lives that, you know, the revenge of someone going to prison for 20 years or them being executed, that's the only justice that can prevail. Let me see. Let me show you something I have on my desk. (laughs) I, I have Lady Justice on my desk. She reminds me every day that justice is what a balancing act, right? And it's blind. And so justice is hard. It's not a simple concept. What it is, it it requires a lot of thoughtfulness, a lot of courage, a lot of understanding, because ultimately you're making decisions that will impact the lives of people, their liberty, and, and, and also their safety. And so we balance the wants and needs of our victims in our community with those of individuals who have committed offenses within our system as well, because we are all human beings, which means none of us are perfect. And I'm not saying that we're not going to focus on holding people accountable because we do. We absolutely do. My office works really, we have a 98% homicide conviction rate are all of our felony units, we have very high conviction rates because we focus on the more serious offenders and we hold them accountable. But understanding that they, they too are human beings and most of them, unless they've committed a murder or a rape, most of them are going to return to our community at some point. And so we can't discount them. We can't 
like animals. They are human beings. And so we have to, for our own safety, even if we believe everyone should be punished, even if that's true, we still have to be interested in their growth because at some point they're returning to the community. And so the question for us is how are they going to return? Are they going to return in a way where they're more angry, where they're better criminals, where they, you know, will commit more serious offenses? Or will they come back and say, you know what? I got the counseling I need. Um, I got job training. Someone cared about me. I got my GED. I have a job lined up. I have a, a group of people. I have mentors now. I have a life coaches who, who, who are, are going to be watching me and looking out for me. That's how I'm coming back and into this community. They're going to come back a lot stronger. And that's what we want for them. That's why I developed, we have a pilot program right now called the Emerging Adult Pilot Program. We're working with the State Department of Public Safety and Corrections, where we have inmates who are in prison now for serious offenses who are serving time, but we want them to come back to our communities better than what, when they left. And so we have nonprofits that are working with them on character development. We bring in guest speakers so that they know what they can aspire to do and be. And we have developed relationships with our unions to assist with job training, as well as companies, for-profit companies who have bought into this idea that, you know, that, that people are not throwaways and that they're willing to train and hire people who have been incarcerated. So when those young people come out uh, and they're going to be graduating in about a week, <laughs> when they uh, do come out and in, in back into our communities, they're going to be ready to succeed, ready to succeed. And that's what we want for everyone who has committed an offense, who's coming back into our community to come back ready to be successful. Well, I, I want to say I wanted to thank you so very much for taking the time today to talk with us about these issues, which are really important. And you're a great teacher. Thank you. <laughs> Everything so great. And I want to thank you for the programs and resources that your office is continuing to push. And hopefully they become models for other places around the country to be able to institute some of these same things. Thank you once again for joining us. You're welcome back at the front of the class here at Sunday Civics anytime. Thank you, El Joy. This was so amazing. I'm really enjoying uh, this conversation, and I really appreciate this service that you provide to the community. Look, my communications team would be upset if I didn't give them a shout out. And <laughs> follow us. You can follow us on a PGSAO News. We are on all uh, social media platforms. That's PGSAO News. And if you want to tag me in Twitter, that's S-A Brave Boy. That's S-A-B-R-A-B-E-B-O-Y. Thank you so much. And thank you to your team for having you on today. Awesome. Thank you. And thank all of you for listening this week here on Sunday Civics. Remember to vote. Vote.NAACPImageAwards.net is where you can vote for Sunday Civics for the NAACP Image Award. We'll be back next Sunday with more ways for you to take civic action. Have a good one. Oh,